Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. The Art of Home Furnishing and Decoration Published in 1921, this story gives an insight into what homes looked like over 100 years ago. It was written by Frank Alvar Parsons. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review during the week. Your ongoing support is greatly appreciated. Thank you to all the Patreons and sponsors who continue to support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Your support allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask of you. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes, or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter. Instagram and Facebook at Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Art of Home Furnishing and Decoration by Frank Elvar Parsons. Man is exactly what he lives in, for environment is the strongest possible factor in man's development. One may be so long among loud noises, bad odours, inharmonious colours and wrong arrangements of things that one doesn't mind them, because one has let them become an integral part of oneself. They are there, and they are as bad as they were at first, but one has become immune to them. This being admitted... It follows, of course, that concordant sounds, agreeable odours, harmonious colours and pleasing arrangements have their immediate effects, but their tendency is toward refinement, culture and artistic appreciation instead of toward brutality, ignorance and indifference. It is certainly not hard to see what effect is produced by living in any wrong environment. As a person accustoms himself to it, he becomes like it. When he is like it, he will admire only its kind, and whatever he does will be as nearly like his environment as he himself is. The importance of thoroughly comprehending this truth cannot be overstated. The mental and artistic quality of the nation and even its physical comfort depend upon it. This viewpoint 
being somewhat new to us, accounts for the upheaval in our ideas of what a home really is. Looking a little into this matter may perhaps stimulate us further in our thinking, which will affect our way of doing whatever we attempt in the future. In the first place, the home is the centre of all life's activities. We are born there, and long before we have seen the shop, the office, the church, or even the school, our first impressions of the fundamentals of life have become fixed. These are exceedingly hard to us. The school can hardly hope to counteract in the child's mind the effect of hearing incorrect language spoken at home for six years. The church is greatly handicapped in its influence, where wrong principles of life have determined habits during the first years. The artistic sense is practically dead and refinement of taste impossible in that child whose parents have given the usual wallpapers, rugs, hangings, pictures, and other objects of modern furnishing to chance to do their unrestricted work. Most of these have been made to sell, but not to people who use any judgment in buying. Occasionally, we think of the durability or the comfort of an article but how seldom of the colours, the patterns, the combinations of different periods with different meanings, all which unite to make an unthinkable, inharmonious jumble, which produces a reaction on an impressionable person little short of criminal. This being the case, is it any wonder that too frequently we are satisfied with inferior things, although we are not able to compete with other nations in creating better ones. This view of the home as an educator places it above any other institution in life and makes it worthy of the most careful and scientific study from several points of view. It might well be to consider here four of the most important of these. The first requisite of a house is physical comfort. Not only is this true of each article of furniture, but it is true also of the placing of each piece as it relates to other pieces. Take, for instance, a chair, a table, a lamp, some books and a footstool. It is not enough that the chair and the stool should each be comfortable to the body, but comfort demands that each be so placed that one can use a chair with the stool while the books on the table with a lamp are placed so that one may lounge or sit and read without effort and without expending energy to assemble what is required. The best possible arrangement, you see, demands more skill than at first appears. Mental comfort is even more important to man in his home than physical comfort. He must or should find in his home 
and intellectual stimulus and a refining influence to complement the activities and struggles of his life outside, to calm and rest the tired nerves and to relieve the material or commercial stress which threatens entirely to destroy his power to see or know anything else. Unconsciously driven by this need, he rushes from home to the club, to the theatre, or elsewhere for diversion, amusement, or rest. This is not as it should be, for in the right environment, the home should furnish the rest and intellectual refreshment needed. Let us consider that there must be an expenditure of thoughts and skill in furnishing a home, if it is to play its rightful part in the scheme of life. Even then, there is another thing to consider. A man may succeed in accomplishing wonders in the realm of physical comfort, yet so completely ignore the question of sanitation as to the menace and the health of his family. If not to offend their sense of decent cleanliness, the horrors of Victorian plush upholstery, channel portiers and nailed-down carpets are still fresh in the memory of some of us, and we have not yet been able to get a clear idea of a really clean thing because of the bad impression made on us by these conditions. Probably we shall never, until we succeed in effacing their memory, by discarding the traditions they present and adopted wholly different ideas in their places. Let us think of the question of sanitation as a second necessity in considering any household problem. It is perhaps unnecessary to look at this matter from the viewpoint of economics, but to me it seems very important. We cannot all afford to buy everything we see, desire, or even appreciate. Realising this, we lose enthusiasm and take almost anything. This is not necessary, nor is it wise. Good things are not all costly, nor are all cheap things equally bad. One might also add that frequently very costly things incline to be bad. At any rate, there is far greater danger of their being so because of the greater opportunity they afford for the expression of bad taste. Knowledge furnishes the greatest offence against bad things in any form. The more one knows the more capable he is of selecting the best for his money and of using his selections in such a way as to suggest that much more was paid for them than they really cost. Intelligent selection, the art of buying the most appropriate furnishings and decorations for the home, leads logically to intelligent decoration the art of arranging the furnishings and decorations so as to make possible a thoroughly attractive home and keenly enjoyable living for the family. The introduction of the word art 
always opens up a new field fraught with unpleasant possibilities. So many things masquerade under this name that we are almost deceived as to what it really is. Shall we not attack and dispose of some of these fallacies before attempting to see what it actually is? Because it is an art to decorate, we are apt to think that anything attached or hung on to another thing is decoration, therefore artistic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Principles control decoration, and decoration is only possible when it conforms to these principles. In order to be decorative, there must be something that requires decoration, that is, which is incomplete in itself. As soon as material of any kind is added after a thing is complete, the result becomes an aggregation, not a decoration. Most houses belong to this class because the owner refuses to stop when he is done. He may also have erred through having no place to decorate, his background being of such a kind that struggle as it might, nothing could compete for attention, therefore could not become decorative by contrast. Simplicity in backgrounds is the foundation of decorative possibility. Over-sentimentality is as bad as over-decoration. Sentiment is not only commendable, but is an essential element that makes for human decency. But sentimentality, which by most people is thought to be the same thing, is unpleasant and unhealthy. Admiration, affection, veneration. Each of these qualities has its place with all of us in its particular situation. This is well, but when, through association, we mistake an impersonal object for the real qualities of a person and begin to bestow adoration on it, then it is time to stop and think. To be sure, one respects some things in his grandfather and his other forebears. He is not insensible to the excellent points in his friends and associates, but if he is a wise man, he does not apply all his grandfather's good qualities to all the furniture he uses, nor the excellent points in his friends to all the other objects they have felt impelled to give him, at one time or another, for some sort of reason. If half the rubbish in every house in America that exists for solely sentimental reasons or because of a fear of being detected in its destruction, were to be burned now, the next generation would have a much clearer vision of what art is, unhampered by sentimental misconception. A sentimental and an aesthetic feeling are quite distinct from one another. Who is there among us who does not love nature, the trees, the birds, the flowers, 
They seem to be part of the great divine scheme which calls for a special appreciation. This is also well, but nature is not art, neither is man's imitation of it. Sometimes his interpretation of it is art, sometimes it is not. Not infrequently, his conventionalization of nature and its adaptation to the material in which it is to be used become a decorative art. Yet even if this is accomplished, the thing may be spoiled in the use, and an inartistic whole may result. Just and reasonable homage to the nature has impelled people to try all sorts of ways to imitate it. This is not art. Art is creation, not imitation. One has but to reflect, and amazement must result when one realises to what the impulse has led in every field of expression. Flowers have been painted on everything known, from the kitchen floor to the plush sofa pillow. The more like nature these decorations have appeared, the more artistic they were thought to be, when the truth was actually the reverse. The more natural these are, the more inappropriate they are as seen from any viewpoint. Who is there that would not hesitate to sit down on, or put his foot on, a perfectly natural rose or lily? Where is there a human being that would care to lie down on a pillow, with the face painted, even, of someone they know in the centre. Who can see nature insulted in various objects by the sticking in of pins or the driving in of nails? The whole thing is too simple. Nature has its place, but it is not art, nor is the imitation of it art. This is so intimately associated with another fallacy that it should suggest it without comment. The appetites of man are ever insistent for attention, the desire for food, drink, shelter. These are physical appetites. They make their assertions naturally and when normally treated bear their relation to the rest of life. But neither these nor the sensations attendant on them are art, nor should these senses be confounded with the artistic sense. Apples and pears look well on trees, in suitable receptacles or on tables. They are to eat. Imitations of them, painted on plates, seem to win admiration at once for their likeness to the real thing. The saliva flows in the mouth. The digestive organs begin their natural functions. And while our sensations are purely physical, strangely enough, many think this artistic. It is the hunger appetite being appeased, not the aesthetic. The atrocities committed in this field are innumerable. Exact copies of everything from a bunch of grapes to an ostrich, may be found in one winter's millinery display, while the real or copied forms of everything 
from a dried fish to a gigantic moose head may be seen in one dining room at one time. This is not art. It is natural history and botany illustration in museum effect. The hardest thing in the world to combat is a universal belief in the infallibility of pictures. These are necessary to convey ideas and they have a function to perform. They are interesting. They may even be amusing, but they are by no means always artistic. So great has been the belief in and admiration for pictures that we have, as a nation, pretty nearly surrendered to the idea that drawing and picture-making alone is art. No greater mistake than this has ever been made. There are a thousand more bad pictures than there are good ones, and a hundred bad ones used in houses where one good one appears. This is because we seem to have a kind of fear that there may be a vacant place on the wall, and also because the picture idea has become a mania. Silence is golden, but a blank space on a wall is often diamonds and emeralds, compared to one filled with the average pictures that are hung, not to mention their frames. What shall we say of this phase of human dissipation, particularly when the frames are gilt ones? A person who allows himself to decorate his house with frames instead of pictures should be expected to hang his wardrobe in the front hall for the same purpose. The results of this mania should not be charged up to the credit side of art. Rather, the man afflicted with it a slave to tradition. For the most difficult thing in the world is for a person to change his established way of thinking or of doing anything. It is so much easier to think as one's grandfather did and to do as one's father did than it is to think and do for oneself. For this reason, we are somewhat handicapped in getting at the essence of art and its practical applications to ordinary life. If mahogany was the favoured wood in the last half of the 18th century, of course it is a good idea to use it for anything, anywhere, forever afterward, even though a much better substitute is at hand. If floors were hardwood or soft wood or stone, or even plastered with oriental rugs bearing no relation to the rest of the house, there seems to be no reason why people should change the rugs or have another kind of floor. Examples of this adherence to tradition are so frequently and so deadly that to cite more would be a waste of time. Traditional belief that antiques are always good or that the work of some particular man is forever praiseworthy or that some particular article should always be used in some established way has blinded us to the possibilities in the right use of new things in a progressive way. All this hinders a clear perception of what art 
really is. If these things which have been misnamed art are carefully removed from consciousness permanently, it is easy enough to see what art is, and then it becomes almost an unconscious process to apply it, whether the application is made to the house, to clothes, or to other personal forms of expression. In the first place, art is creation. It is the personal expression of the individual in any material or combination that completely conveys his conception of what he is trying to project. This connection generally expresses a need which he himself feels. It may be for a house, a living room, a divan, a hat, a footstool, a typewriter, or an automobile. In any case, there is a need for something for a particular use. This need should be the reason for the art expression. Spurred on by the need, a man creates something which will fill the need. This need is both functional or material and mental or artistic. One bar to seeing what art is rests in not recognizing this twofold element in it. In so far as one is able to make a chair that fits the body, fulfills its special function as a dining room chair or a study chair, he has succeeded in creating the first artistic element, an object which does not do honestly and truthfully and sensibly what it purports to do cannot be artistic, no matter how it looks. The second element that enters into art is appearance or beauty. This element or quality is a little more difficult to define because it is relative, just as heat is or as goodness is. What seems warm to one seems cold to another. What seems good to one may be bad to someone else. So then, the standard of beauty depends entirely upon one's own conception of it. This does not mean that anything that anybody considers beautiful is so, any more than it means that it is a warm day when the thermometer is at zero because somebody does not feel cold it simply means that the person who judges may or may not have a right mental standard of what beauty really is. This standard may be acquired approximately by anyone, for it is determined by certain principles. If the principles of harmony are understood and applied, beauty will result. Take, for instance, the problem of a particular room the first question to ask oneself, what is this room for? If it is a dining room, it is a place in which to eat in peace. If it is a living room, it is to live in and should have a quiet, restful, refined and otherwise pleasant atmosphere. If it is a bedroom, it is to rest and sleep in. From whatever standpoint the room is viewed, the question of use comes first. 
Anything in the dining room that interferes with eating in peace is in bad taste. Whatever appears as decoration in the living room that is unrestful, tawdry, common, or unessential, is inartistic. If the bedroom contains anything that is out of tone with its general spirit, if it contains anything that makes for other than an atmosphere of calm, contentment and deep sound sleep, it should be removed at once. Let this point of view spur us on to make an investigation of our houses, room by room, and alter or remove everything that strikes a jarring note. Let us start with the bedroom. Are there spotted fabrics or papers on the wall? The spots on which one involuntarily counts, even after going to sleep. Are there a half dozen small pictures in black frames against a white background, so hung that successive steps are formed, which resemble the front hall stairs? Are there other diverting and disturbing arrangements in the room that seem to invite us to close our eyes, to avoid further annoyance. Much can be done in the house with decoration, by elimination, and the strongest argument for this process will be found in submitting each room to the test, as to the performance of its proper function. These elements, fitness to use and beauty, which, when combined, make what is called the art of quality, must be made comprehensible by facts and truths, which can be expressed in a language form that all may learn to understand. And this art language is made up of colour, form, line and texture, and depends for its efficiency on a knowledge of the principles which govern it and upon an appreciation for the niceties in its use. Anyone can learn the principles and will grow in appreciation as he makes a right use of what he knows. Of all the qualities mentioned, colour is the most interesting, at least it is the easiest to see. At the same time, it is the most misused. This is much too small a space in which to demonstrate, with any thoroughness, the colour language idea. But two or three of the most important facts must be emphasised. Nothing is more personal than colour, and nothing admits of expressing personality with clearer or more manifest charm. The normal colours yellow, red, blue, green orange and violet may be used in illustration of this statement. Colour has its source in light and natural light comes from the sun. Yellow looks most like the sun as it expresses the quality that the sun seems to give out. From the sun we are cheered, made light-hearted and receive new life. Yellow in a room should, under normal conditions, produce the same feelings where it is the basis for the wall colour, or is used in curtains or in other spots. Red suggests blood and fire. It is associated with activity 
aggression, and passion. It heats and stimulates. One who fails to react to colour is not normal or is immune from overcontact, while one who simply dislikes or likes a colour and therefore uses it or never does misses the real chance to express ideas. If one prefers red, there is no proof in the fact that makes it incumbent on him to live surrounded by it. He may be erratic enough without it, or possibly he doesn't need a stimulant. Need is the fundamental question rather than liking. It is a question of what one ought to have. It is interesting to know that the aggressive quality of red makes a room in which it is used smaller in appearance. And there are times when this is not desirable. Its warming quality is not needed in hot climates or during a warm season. Blue has an opposite effect from red. Its reactions are restraint, coolness, repose and distance. By association, one thinks of a clear blue sky and the cool breezes from the blue waters of the ocean. This makes blue a suitable antidote for hot weather and a temperate force, useful in modifying some people's dispositions. Green, which is a union of yellow and blue, expresses the qualities of both. Nothing could be more restful soothing and agreeable than the cheering and cooling effects of a seat in the shade upon the green grass under luxuriant green trees in the middle of a hot day. It is easy to see the practical application of this in decorative art. Violet or purple has the qualities of red and blue, while orange has the qualities of yellow and red. It is interesting to study the natural reactions shown by people of all ages and conditions to these colours as environments under different mental conditions. Incomplete as these suggestions are, they are probably sufficient to establish the point that personal qualities or individual character traits can be definitely expressed in colour terms and that antidotes for an excess of certain qualities are just as possible where a knowledge of colour exists. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that story. If you're not quite tired yet, feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.